Welcome to TCN Talks. The goal of our podcast is to provide concise and relevant information for busy hospice and palliative care leaders and staff. We understand your busy schedules and believe that brevity signals respect. And now, here's our host, Chris Como. Hello and welcome to TCN Talks. Our guest today is Mary Mahalio. She's one of the co-founders of Delta Care Rx and also their CEO. And as you all know, our Delta Care X has always been a wonderful partner and supporter and sponsor of TCN Talks. So Mary, it's so good to have you with us today. Nice to see you, Chris. Yeah, Thank nice you. Nice to see you too. Well, Mary, what does our audience need to know about you? Well, uh, I think they need to know that I've been a hospice and palliative care clinical pharmacist for almost three decades and that I am a major crusader for pharmaceutical care. Pharmaceutical care is uh, a topic that I, most pharmacists know plenty about, but outside the, the world of pharmacy practice, uh, it's not well recognized. So I've tried to do my part in promoting pharmaceutical care. Well, well, Mary, I just you know, today's an honor for me, but you probably don't know that. But I was 25 when I first came into hospice, and it was at Covenant Hospice in Pensacola. And your name was a legend even then. And uh, Phyllis, of course, was one of the folks. She was the consulting pharmacist that we worked with back then, but always heard that you and Phyllis were just two of the most um, incredible people in this space. So your name precedes you in the pharmacy area, and you've just done some great work in this area. So let me just start by saying just thank you, because our, our whole movement um, is better because of what you've brought to it. So we appreciate that. Well, thank you, Chris. That's very kind. Well, again, that's probably a good segue. So you have such a good history and experience in the whole hospice palliative care movement segment. So I think you've got a unique perspective. So as you look back over the years, just what are some of your reflections, um, especially from the pharmacotherapy side? Well, I would say, you know, the more things change, things change the same, right? They stay the same. <laughs> so, uh, you know, We've had a lot of newer drugs come into the marketplace over the years, but in general, uh, most of the medications that we use and practice today are the same meds that we used more than a decade ago. So the, the luxury we have, however, that is that for many of the uh, newer medications that uh, we wanted to use 10 years ago and couldn't because of price, they're now available generically. And uh, we have a really uh, nice assortment of medications uh, for formulary on our formularies these days and for pain and symptom management that are very, very affordable. And we're, we're, we are really blessed uh, to be able to make that statement. So, you know, I, I remember back in 2008 when we had a, a very, very severe shortage of concentrated morphine that we were dealing with. And uh, I, I thought we had seen the worst. And, you know, here we are in uh, 2023 and, and we're faced with uh, medicated medication shortages month after month that we're dealing with that really uh, have a significant impact uh, in more than one way uh, for the hospice industry. So uh, it ties up our efficiency uh, and it increases our cost of doing business. So if I had to pick one issue that I, I wish I could just make, make it go away, it would be these medication shortages. 
Wow. And, and Mary, is that going to be, are we going to see more of that in the future? Unfortunately, I think we are. We, um, we are at a uh, time in this country where the majority of our generic medications are manufactured outside the country, uh, or at least uh, the facilities are owned by uh, foreign manufacturers. And, um, you know, coupled with the uh, pandemic that we're just now starting to really emerge from, uh, I think we're going to experience at least, you know, several more years before we get this supply chain problem cleaned up. Well, well, thanks for being honest about that because we want to be informative on the show. Well, I also think, Mary, about just what are some of the administrative topics from a national landscape regarding pharmaceuticals that hospice, palliative care leaders and staff need to know about? I think the number one item is probably the need uh, to uh, adhere to federal and state uh, regulatory requirements uh, at a much higher level uh, than I think most of us do from day to day. And not that anyone wouldn't adhere to a regulatory matter, but uh, we do have to give great consideration from day to day um, at the pharmacy level, uh, as well as at the nursing and medicine level with respect to uh, regulatory matters and uh, make sure that we are adhering, uh, for example, to the controlled substance regulations that that we, we are all responsible for adhering to. So uh, these are serious matters. Uh, we have to give these um, regulatory issues the time and consideration necessary to make sure that we are um, performing in a in, in a legal way that, that we should be with respect to these regulations. Mary, is there more just kind of detail or just color commentary around? Because I was just going to ask you, what are federal state regulations that you guys must stay on top of? And maybe where can hospices, hospice powder care organizations be good partners with you in that? Because um, it's, it's pretty bad when people are pointing the finger, Yeah, but it's much better when we're collaborating and working well together. Right. Well, you know, the, the fact that we now have the luxury of e-prescribing is, is a great advantage for all of us as clinicians. Um, I hear stories um, around the country when we're, when we're chatting about, uh, you know, day-to-day -day, uh, hospice administrative matters. And every now and then I'll hear uh, a comment uh, about the local pharmacy who you know, refuses to do this or refuses to do that for the hospice. And, uh, you know, specifically, it's it's not, these are not new regulations. They've been around for decades. And a, a moment ago, I referred to the Controlled Substance Act. And, you know, we have to have written prescriptions for uh, Schedule II products, uh, medications, and uh, there's no way around that. So, you know, they're they're either provided the old-fashioned way in writing, uh, or they are e-prescribed, and there's really no in-between. So uh, sometimes uh, our medical and nursing colleagues are a little put out, I think, over that, some of the regulatory mm -hmm. uh, uh, minutia that we have to deal with. But, you know, everybody has to uh, adhere to the, the regulations, and 
We just need to cooperate and get it done together. Yeah, that's well said. Well, Mary, let me switch gears on just a little bit, but you know, given the economic times and how reimbursements only going to get more and more challenging, what are some cost containment strategies that hospices maybe could and perhaps should embrace? Well, a few things come to mind, Chris. I, I would, I would suggest that, you know, every hospice needs to take the time to build an adequate and competent therapeutic infrastructure. And, um, when I suggest that, what I mean is, you know, really take the time to get the stakeholders around the table uh, and spend significant time together uh, reviewing medication utilization, uh, actively participating from an administrative perspective, as well as, uh, you know, all the other stakeholders, uh, our medical and nursing colleagues and others uh, to build a preferred drug list, uh, also known as a formulary. You know, that's those those are not new ideas. They've been around for decades. But really walking the walk and living up to those documents that you put in place from day to day. You know, hospices should really try to keep their eye on um, what I like to refer to as target drugs, which are medications that are typically non-formulary meds. Uh, they're usually brand name medications that are new to the marketplace. And um, most of the time, uh, we don't really need to, to reach for the majority of those meds in end-of-life care. Another uh, thought about that is really uh, staying focused on your cost per patient day, uh, as well as your satisfaction uh, from the nursing staff perspective with respect to the medication procurement process, because, you know, generic medications, which are the mainstay of the drugs that we use in practice today, uh, are not too expensive. Um, but what makes them expensive is the procurement process and all of the time that has to be spent uh, to get the meds that our patients need. Mary, um, back in the day, I know like trying to figure out that that right par level of ordering, uh -huh. um, like the days to fill, is that still kind of part of the equation? It is. It is. I think that, uh, you know, one uh, model that works very well is to try to anticipate the needs of the patient based on prognosis. And, uh, you know, early in the hospice admission, if the prognosis is great enough, uh, you can use that as part of the decision-making process with respect to the quantity of meds that you're going to purchase. Uh, you could have a sliding scale based on prognosis and, and other uh, tools that we use, uh, such as the palliative performance score, and you know use those as part of the criteria that, as I just said, determines the quantity of medication purchased. That's well said. When when I kind of think about, um, like when we think about your history, and I, I really see where we've gotten better in this area. And what just occurred to me, listen to you, Mary, because I can remember my early days in hospice, 18 PPD in drug costs mm -hmm. was the hospice yeah. where I started. And you think about the millions of dollars of what that means for programs. So do you feel like when we look back, is that one of the greatest accomplishments or you feel like it's probably on par for 
increase in quality care as well as decreasing costs at the same time? I do, Chris. I mean, I think we've really come a long way uh, from, I remember the days that you just mentioned. Uh, I'll never forget the shock I, I felt when when I started working with a local hospice and their cost per patient day uh, was as high as it was. I, I was absolutely shocked. So I think nationwide we've come a long way. The average cost of medications per day, or the benchmark that we usually uh, recognize and shoot for is eight dollars, eight dollars and fifty cents per patient day. Is is I think it's it's a comfortable um, benchmark. Uh, we certainly work with many hospices that that do perform much better than that, and we work mm-hmm. with a few who who have a a culture that uh, leads them to spend a little more. So we've made a great stride, really. I think in the last decade. Well. Also, Mary, I think it's probably a good segue. So you have, again, such a unique perspective. But how can hospice-empowered care leaders and staff know that they've got a good pharmaceutical care provider and whether their provider is truly meeting their needs? Well, like other things, I think the best uh, source of that information is to, is to check in with the nursing staff. You know, the nurses work so very hard and if the nurses aren't happy no one's happy so if if your system's not working they're going to tell you um they they don't have time to be tied up with inefficiency they need the service that the situation demands and they need to have the support uh in the trenches of care so you know you need 24 7 365 service illness knows no day of the week or time of the day, and it has to be competent at all times. So I think that's the number one indicator uh, from an administrative perspective is to, you know, take the, ner- the pulse of the nursing staff. Uh, of course, your overall cost of medications per patient day is a good indicator. I mean, you have to make sure that uh, the vendor you're working with uh, has the contractual relationships in place nationally. Uh, that will allow uh, medications to be purchased, uh, you know, at at the most economic level possible. There's a lot of variance in the marketplace, and uh, it still surprises me today, uh, you know, by region of the country, uh, what the price of medications, what the variance can be in the price of medication. Wow. Mary, we've done some good reflecting on the past and kind of present day, but let's look to the future. What are some innovations that you think we're going to see in the pharmacotherapy side? Well, I think we'll continue to see a much more competent uh, interface between the electronic health record and the pharmacy system that's being used. Uh, We aren't, in my opinion, anywhere near where we need to be uh, in that realm. And uh, it's one of the things that that I'm really uh, hopeful uh, for that will all of us will be able to uh, do a better job with uh, interfaces. That it's a tremendous uh, time-saving uh, intervention when it works right, and I just don't think that uh, any of us have really arrived where we need to be to to do that right. So hopefully that's coming. Um, I also uh, am hopeful that 
uh, we'll be able to uh, do a better job nationally uh, with respect to improving access to medications. You know, when a hospice patient needs a med, they need a med. And uh, those medications have to be able to uh, be procured more efficiently within the community that the patient lives. Do you think we'll see the Amazon um, little, uh, what do you call those things? I want to call it a robot. That's not it. The um, uh, Oh, gosh, the drones. The drone. Do you see the dr delivery drones? Do you think we're going to see that? I see drones coming. Absolutely. In fact, I just read an article the other day about uh, a new uh, initiative to, to test them with delivering medication. So they're definitely in the future. Uh, I hope that... Uh, it's sooner than later because we really, really need them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about that. I mean, that's so important in that first, that time to admission and time to getting the drugs, especially in an exacerbation situation. I could see what that would be huge. Mary, do you want to speak to, you know, there's um, Mark Cohen and I do the monthly top newscast, and it's interesting because uh -huh. Mark does his part from the quantitative number of um, articles. So a lot of articles on like medical marijuana and also more the use of psilocybins throughout the country. And so I'm just curious if you got an opinion on either one of those. Well, I'm very excited about the, the uh, future use of psilocybin and, and other hallucinogenic types of medications that we hope will come to market. I do think we're, we're at least, uh, five to ten years away from from seeing those medications uh, on the shelves of, of pharmacies, however. Um, but they are very exciting therapeutic opportunities uh, for the management of uh, severe depression. And yeah. uh, again, hopefully we'll, we'll have those available sooner than later. Uh, with respect to medical marijuana, uh, I think that there are certainly uh, patient populations that benefit uh, more than others. It does seem to have some efficacy with respect to conditions that uh, include a lot of inflammatory pain. Um, you know, I, I never in my wildest dream would have ever thought that we would have medical marijuana available to us in the United States uh, as we do today. I mean, it, when I think about it, it blows my mind. Um, if I had it my way, though, Chris, it'd be sold in pharmacies. Yeah, yeah, wow. That would make so much sense. <laughs> I mean, yes. along with everything else. Yeah, interesting. Yep. When you were talking about the psilocybins, and so I have a friend who's gotten involved in ketamine clinics, and they mm -hmm. have literally seen amazing results, especially with people, as you said, severe depression, PTSD. I mean, mm -hmm. almost kind of miraculous type outcomes. And you think of really good life closure um, and then you think about the use of that. And so that's interesting. It's a kind of a five to 10 year period, probably. Um, so is, is there a lot of studies? Is that kind of just the cycle of the studies and getting things approved or? Yeah, there are, there are a lot. I just looked at this the other day, a lot of clinical trials being conducted, um, with these various agents and, uh, you know, it, it takes a good decade, uh, to get these products to market. So, you know, there's still schedule one, uh, molecules. Uh, it takes a long time to convince 
the decision makers that we can advance and 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 allow these medications to be used. So I, I do really think we're five to ten years away from seeing them. Well, Mary, final thoughts, just your opportunity. Any final thoughts? Well, my final thoughts, uh, I think, definitely have to include how necessary it is to have uh, a pharmacist actively involved uh, on the hospice interdisciplinary uh, team. Now, you mentioned uh, the early work that uh, Phyllis and I did, um, you know, back in uh, the very late 90s and uh, I think, you know, not much has changed, again, to, to bring that up, uh, with respect to the need to integrate a pharmacist into the interdisciplinary team. It can make all the difference uh, with respect to um, uh, the quality of patient care that hospices deliver, as well as the cost of therapy. Uh, we are, uh, as a prof- profession, ready and willing to uh, promote hospice care in this country. One of the thoughts that, that uh, has occurred to me so many times is uh, using the local community pharmacies to, to really advocate for uh, hospice care. I think it's an untapped resource. Um, I always said that's on my to-do list, and I've not accomplished it yet, so I haven't forgotten about it. I really do think it would be a greater partnership um, than it actually is today. Well, you know, on that point, Mary, recently, um, Mark and I on our monthly news stories, top news stories of the month, one that I had that just didn't make the cut, but it was like right at that next level. It's about pharmacists are essential to rural access to healthcare. And that, I mean, there's 600 hospitals at risk in our country, which is scary to think what that's going to mean in the future of healthcare. But yet you think about those local pharmacists in places that you don't even have a critical access hospital. So I think you're really on to something and how critical those pharmacists are. And in some cases, even where a lack of primary care, you at least have a pharmacy even in small little pockets. So I think you're on to something there. Well, I I hope I'm practicing long enough to see it. You know, pharmacists are, uh, we've come a long way and uh, the federal government needs to take the the uh, final steps and rec- recognize pharmacists as providers. Excuse me there. You saw what happened. Yep. <laughs> well, well, Mary, thank you. Thank you for all the great work you've done over these many years. And I want to leave our listeners with a quote. This is one that Mary has chosen for us. And so it's not immoral or unethical to think about the cost of therapy. The cost of therapy should be recognized regardless of the environment of care. When I think about that quote and think of just the work that Mary's done over the years and now she and Delta Care RX and uh, probably a lot of our listeners don't realize, I mean, going from where those costs per patient day were to where they are today, that means your organization's had more resources to plow back into the mission. That could be pay raises for our staff, um, launching inpatient units, launching power to care programs. And so, Mary, you guys have done great work. So really appreciate you. And to all our listeners, we appreciate you as well. So thanks for listening to TCN Talks. Thank you, Chris.